Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to On the Tape. I am Dan Nathan. That laugh, as you guys know, is EY from SoFi. That would be Liz Young. She is the head strategist over at SoFi. And Guy Adami, early on a Monday here, buddy. You got a big smile on your face. because always smiling. There's a, little, there's a little New York Yankee news. It's also it's also opening day on Thursday. And, and there's a kid who just made it to the Bronx, to the big leagues. Talk to us a little bit about your excitement about your young man, Anthony Volpe. Volpe, 2019 yeah. graduate of Del Barton High School. For less than four years later, the kid's going to be starting shortstop for the Yankees, which is remarkable. Grew up a Yankee fan. Uh, his parents were huge Yankee fans. I think his father or his grandfather, huge Mickey Mantle fan. Obviously, you can't wear a single digit number in the Bronx anymore. They're all retired. So number seven was not available. That's why he's wearing number 77. And I hope he keeps it in the show, as they say. So Great kid, Paisan. I'm so excited for him. And if you haven't seen the videos over the weekend of him being told that he was going to make it up north uh, with the big team, you should check it out. It's very cool. It's pretty cool. And and also just to note that your two boys went to Del Barton where he went to high school, which is uh, pretty cool. So we're rooting for number 77 up in the Bronx. All right. We got a lot. This is a Monday. We got a lot. It feels like, um, you know, two weeks ago, Liz, we had the disaster du jour was Silicon Valley Bank. It went under. It was in receivership for two weeks. It had gone back and forth talking about what's going to happen to the assets. Will some bank buy it? And it's first citizens. This is also a guy. You got to talk to us a little bit about this in a second here. It's a five-letter symbol. I mean, these are ones. This is kind of a no-go. But, Liz, we're getting a little bit of a rally here, okay? So it's it's really interesting. Like, the knock-on effect is that First Republic, which was was kind of the disaster of, of last week, right, if you will, after the Silicon Valley Bank. That stock was trading up 30% on the news that First Citizens Bank was buying Silicon Valley Bank. 
out of receivership here. Um, First Republic was up 30% in the pre-market. Right now, as we record a little after 10 a.m., it's only up 16%. And so we obviously have seen the major money center banks rally a little bit here. G- give me your take on this because, uh, you know, at least the memes on Twitter are suggesting that the, the banking crisis of 2023 is now over. First of all, I know you want us to be all business on a Monday, yeah. Dan, but I need to file a missing persons report for guys faux hawk. Usually there's a faux hawk <laughs> and we've got like gel. I don't know what's happening he calls on top it the of your head. Is it the and you were right, uh, EY. You said the brand and I didn't know. And then I went up and looked and you were spot on. And, I, so. and it was that one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, but okay. I got my pomade anyway, in. But I so even, I even guys' good. hair is all business today. So we're ready. Okay. So I, it's not over. It, I mean, if if the market thinks it's over, it's not over. We've got, yeah, a couple banks got saved, but the last time I checked, having to save banks was not a good sign. Whether the government has to do it or private companies have to do it, this is a situation where I think we've seen maybe more than the tip of the iceberg, right? And and I've said for about a week now, I don't know that the headlines are going to stay consistent in the sense that, you know, there's going to be continuous runs on the banks and, you know, what I don't think it's going to be necessarily the same exact problem for the next few months, but there's obviously an issue, a liquidity issue and a mark to market issue in the banking system. This is not the last that we're going to hear of it. What I find peculiar is that the the five symbol ticker uh, is trading up so much on a day when they acquired a suffering institution. Usually what happens is the acquirer trades down and the acquiree trades up. So there's a little activity today that I feel like um, is pointing to maybe over-exuberance, over-excitement. Well, that guy, would, wouldn't would that be that, that basically, listen, those deposits, and, and one of the things that Silicon Valley Bank did almost immediately, right, once the Fed and the FDIC and the Treasury and everybody and their mother, like, backstopped them. This was two weeks ago. They basically said, we are the safest bank in America right now, so leave your deposits here. So really, what, what you know, what, what First Citizens Bank Corp um, is getting is, is basically a backstop for all of those deposits, right? And so, you know, that's why that stock is up 40%. It's a pretty remarkable chart. If you look at the precipitous drop that stock had, I mean, we're probably, and I'm guessing now, but we're probably the levels we saw in early February before all this started. So, I mean, you know, this company is round tripped and I watched the CEO this morning and I'm sure he's a lovely guy. He's from one of the Carolinas, I guess it's North Carolina, which is wonderful. It's all beautiful. But they asked him a question, for example, you know, how are you going to integrate, you know, much different customer base, client base, depositor base with Silicon Valley and your bank? Well, the weather here in Raleigh is beautiful. I mean, it, that's literally the types of answers he gave to questions. I mean, it's great. I tell people all the time, you know, you don't control the question you get, but you control the answer. But I mean, his answers were from total left field. So you talk about a culture shock. And when you try to mix these types of, I guess, cultures together, typically, I don't know how it's going to all work out. So for a day, at least to Liz's point, everybody's excited. But I also agree with her. I mean, if you look at the bond market volatility over the last couple of weeks, as many people got hurt with the bond volatility on the way up in rates, you got to believe there are equally a number of people offsides on the way back down. 
That's a great point. Okay, so we have the ten-year U.S. Treasury yield at three and a half percent, and and you know, and I'm looking at the chart of it right here, and you know, back in June it was three and a half percent, and then again it was three and a half percent in September, then it was in uh, November, December three and a half percent, and then January and February three and a half, and, and again the volatility, and we talked about this on the pods, you know, for a year has been extraordinary. Well, here we are back at three and a half percent. So when you think of these large books, okay, like these these held to maturities, right? This is this is the mismatch and the duration that that a lot of these regionals had against their deposits, right? And so when they had a run on their deposits and they need to actually kind of you know fulfill like those obligations, they had to book losses against where yields were compared to where they bought the treasuries. Okay, that's the crisis in a nutshell here. Well, here we are at three and a half percent, and I keep hearing people say, "Well, this has only gotten better, right? Because you know yields have come down from four percent in the ten year, and we know that one." One of the biggest issues is that they were long duration sort of treasuries versus the potential for short term deposit liabilities, right? And so I'm not sure, guy, that four to three, four back to three and a half makes it any easier for these risk management departments that did not hedge properly, that did not want to take marks, right? Mark to market these books when they had rates go against them. And I'm not sure the volatility really helps them right now. No, because, no, because quite frankly, nobody's ever seen so when I say nobody, nobody. I mean this is unprecedented volatility. I mean two-year yields went north of five, per, north of five percent down to levels they are now. I mean 150, 160 basis points. I mean it's, it's, it's mind-numbing if you think about the types of moves we're seeing. So I don't know. I, I, I don't think again people got hurt on the way up in yields. They were offsides there. I'm sure people tried to scurry around and fix their books, and then rates went the other way on them. So as many people are going to be offsides now, and we'll see if it manifests itself in something. But the banking problems that the market seems to be assuaged by today, by you know, by this deal, I think are just still bubbling up, Dan. Right, and in a large part, this has to do with what a lot of I think pundits um, or, or strategists or, or analysts are suggesting was maybe some unsophisticated risk departments in regional banks. Okay, and Liz, you've worked at regional banks, you've worked at massive banks, you work at a fintech now, and, and it's interesting. I mean, like you know, to, I think to paint each group by with one brush is probably not particularly fair. The weakness in the large money center banks, and we've been talking about it over the last couple of weeks. I mean, my assumption is that if these regional banks have some issues, there's no doubt that some of these money center banks have issues, but they're much more diversified. Their deposit bases are much bigger. So again, but then we've heard talk about some big brokerage firms that have banks like Schwab, and Schwab has gotten absolutely annihilated. And we've also heard um, that insurance companies are likely to have some issues too. So talk about that because, you know, the 2008 playbook was like, okay, Bear was the problem child. There was a run on that investment bank. It was was put into the arms of like best of breed JP Morgan or so. And then it was like kind of off the races. The S&P 500 recovered, rallied 15% over the next couple of months. But then it was kind of, you know, it just came out that there were problems all over the place and similar. And again, different because these were really trashy mortgage backed assets. You know what I mean? Um, it's different, no doubt about it. But are we likely, even if we kind of come out of this and people are like, that's in the rear view mirror, at least as it relates to regionals, it seems like there's lots of other pockets within financials where there could be problems. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, okay, so first of all, I think I've said this before, and I'm, I'm quoting somebody else. There's rarely ever just one roach in the wall. So I think we're going to find out that there's plenty more to, that to be had. The thing about regional banks is that, as you stated, they don't have as diversified of revenue streams. So they're going to be more sensitive when you identify an issue in one of their revenue streams, right? Because they're so dependent on it. And this idea that 
the rally in long bonds has made it easier for them. Sure, compared to maybe mid-2022, right? But think about how this all happened. We had a crisis in 2020. We had a ton of stimulus that went through 2021. That's where everybody built up savings. They deposited it in banks. Those banks then had to buy stuff with that savings money, right? So if they're buying bonds in 2020 and 2021, we had a 10-year treasury at 0.5, and then we had a 10-year treasury at the end of 2021 at 1.5. So having it rally back down to three and a half is really not helping them all that much. There's still a huge unrealized loss in that period of time. And that's just how it's going to work for most of the banks. That being said, the bigger ones, yes, of course, are also going to face these same problems, but they have more access to capital, right? So somebody like a Schwab or one of the bigger one of the bigger guys that is required to keep more on reserve, they have more access to it. They probably don't get hit as hard. If you remember how this all started, Guy and I were doing market call that day when SVB came out and said, we're issuing a big equity raise. There, Obviously, you know, the liquidity problems came out. If somebody like a Schwab or a JP Morgan or a big bank like that issued an equity raise, probably would be looked at with a raised eyebrow, but not something that would plummet the stock and cause a run, in my opinion, right? So there's just a little more insulation there, and I think the regionals were much more sensitive. So, Guy, let's bring it back to the market here. Um, you know, again, we've been talking about a market call on, on the tape. I mean, I, I've been kind of, uh, you know, bearish of the banks, expressing that um, largely through XLF. XLF, you know, one of the largest holdings there is Berkshire, and, you know, Berkshire's got plenty plenty of, of insurance exposure um, there. But let's let's talk about, like, how, how we're kind of trading this. I kind of do feel like I'm getting to a point where – Maybe the XLF, I'm pressing it a little bit, but we also know when Q1 earnings start in mid-April, it's going to start with the banks. And I think that this is probably one of the most important quarters for the banks as far as what they signal and how they are prepared for whatever is to come next. And I would expect them to be very cautious, even with the main money center banks having their stocks hit kind of hard in what also appears to be a pretty healthy backdrop for the market, at least away from the concentration in tech. And Liz had this tweet out this morning, Guy, much of last year's equal weight S&P 500 outperformance versus the market cap weighted S&P uh, was wiped out this month. We we're basically back to where we were in April of 2022 with the big names holding things up. So, you know, this is a, a theme that we've harped on for a while. Does that make you feel more or less bearish that we have six or seven stocks doing all the heavy lifting for the broad market, and we have really important sectors in the market acting very poorly. Well, what's that statistic? I saw Apple and Microsoft are now 13% of the S&P 500, which is a pretty remarkable number. Of course, that gives you, I think it gives you, if nothing else, I mean, it's got to be reason for pause or concern that, again, the heavy lifting is being done by so few stocks. In terms of the XLF, you know, as we're sitting here, it's trading 31 and a half thereabouts. I mean, I think 29.60 was a recent low. So it's not like it's exploded higher. And I'll tell you, if you really want to go back and look, go back and look at the lows we saw back in September of last year, right around that 29 and a half level. And then if you're looking for past uh, resistance become support, you find that in the form of February of 2020. Um, I think we all remember that. Uh, that was around 29 and a half, 30. So you're talking about huge levels here in the XLF. And and there's no real bounce here. Yeah, obviously, it's up a little bit today, but you know, not a meaningful bounce off those recent lows. So I think there's clearly cause for concern. Now, all this is being masked by an S&P, which is now about 50 or so handles above the 200-day moving average. So I think there's this collective sigh of relief, that coupled with the fact that the VIX, which went north of 30, 
is now, I think, 21 and a half. So I think everybody's saying to the way we started the show, sort of crisis averted, go on to your normally scheduled broadcast. The problem is, uh, I don't. I think it might be averted for now, but below the surface, there's still so many problems yet to be, I think, at least found and then figured out what to do with. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, if you're looking at like kind of measures of volatility in the equity markets, okay, they're saying like crisis averted. But if you're looking at those same measures in, in the bond market, they're saying the exact opposite. And they're really speaking to recession. Guy, you have had this call for so long over the last year that when rates finally do come in, when they do peak, it's going to be for all the wrong reasons. And David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research had a note out um, this morning. And, and again, he was a guy who was very early on the financial crisis. He was probably starting to sound the alarms in late 06, 07. And he was kind of ridiculed for that, but he was right for all the like for all the right reasons when it finally happened. And he said, this isn't a repeat of 08, 09, but what does come next is a more immediate recession, a credit contraction, deflation, lower interest rates, higher bank funding costs, and re-regulation and consolidation. And that's really important. And then, you know, Fed Cash Kari uh, member or the Fed, uh, you know, uh, I, I, yeah. Minnesota Bank. Uh, yeah, yeah, Neil Cash Kari. I think um, he's from the great state of Minnesota. A lot of great things come out the, of Minnesota. Please a lot continue. of great things come out of Minnesota. But he's also out over the weekend in a Bloomberg article talking about how um, increased risk of recession lives. So talk to us a little bit about the concentration in the S&P 500, what's going on under the hood. We don't have to spend any more time on the financials. And if we do have a recession that comes quicker, we started this year with that whole soft landing, really mild recession, then no landing. And now all those calls are coming back. And so where do you want to be in the stock market right now, if that's the case, because it's probably a little too early for the financials and the tech sector seems, at least on the mega caps, really crowded. Well, I, I will say the financials at this point are trading below book value broadly, uh, which generally speaking, if you look back in history, that is an attractive entry point. But I completely agree. I think there's probably more stress to come. So you get a, a better entry point if you just give it a little time. But if you look at what's happened in the S&P sectors over the trailing one month, and this hasn't even been going on for a month yet, but trailing one month, it's almost a perfect pattern of growthy stuff outperforming, cyclicals underperforming. Financials, obviously the worst of that group, but then you've got energy, real estate, materials, industrials, all at the bottom of the pack. Top of the pack, communications, infotech, uh, staples are actually up there too, but communications and infotech wildly outperforming anybody else. I think again, and we've talked about this so many times, this is the muscle memory. This is the, oh, okay, we might go into a recession. And and look, the recession or the, the drawdown, whatever we want to call it, that we've been calling for this doesn't necessarily change the fact that we've thought it was going to happen, but it pulled it forward, right? Just as Rosie said, it makes it a little bit more immediate. So it probably happened sooner because now things got more heightened more quickly. But this is that muscle memory of, oh, okay, recession, that means that you gotta you hit the cyclicals, you buy the growth, you stay in large cap growth, and those are defensive names from now on. I don't think they are defensive names. I think that you want some classic defensives, actually, and I would probably look at utilities here as a classic defensive. But aside from that, if we go into a recession, you you really you don't want to just rotate around within the stock market. you got to rotate out of the stock market to some degree. Now, I would never, as a strategist, tell people that if you're a long-term investor, you should be completely out of stocks. You should never be completely out of stocks. But you probably want to move money into other stuff, like gold, like treasuries, like money market funds, right? But if you have to be in the stock market, utilities are probably my best bet there. Jerome Powell said something last week, and Liz has talked about this. And, you know, EY has brought this up a number of times. The 
warning signs when the inversion comes. That's all it is, is a warning sign. It's the red light when things start going back the other way. And rates could go back to zero now. I mean, think about this for a second. This is my opinion. Interest rates could all go back to where we were over the last few years. But bank lending is not going to magically come out of the woodwork. I mean, bank lending is going to be almost by definition more tight, I believe. And if you think about these high-flying tech names, um, so much of that growth is predicated on their access to capital, which is why they're given a premium valuation. But I don't think regardless of where rates go, they're going to have that same access to capital. So I think people are looking at the right things. They're just interpreting it wrong, in my opinion. That's a great point. In the kind of wake of the financial crisis, right? We had QE1, QE2. We had all those other things. What were they trying to do? They were trying to push businesses again after a really lax period of credit standards in the lead up to the crisis to actually spend, to borrow, encouraging banks that had just bought a whole bunch of other banks that they really didn't want to buy, right? Like to kind of get their, their ducks in a row and start lending again. But it took years. And there was this obsession in 2010, 11, and 12. And then it was like kind of the rolling sovereign debt crisis in Europe, right? And so like the banking system was on life support in many ways for years after the financial crisis. And it's just kind of funny because zero rates for that long, you know, really kind of pushed us into another banking crisis. And I just don't believe that it's going to be a one month sort of thing. And I'm not saying that we're going to have the same outcome as we had in 08 with a 50% or so drop in the S&P 500. But if you think about the fact that we're likely to have a recession soon, and let's talk about some of the data that we're going to see this week in a second here, the stock market has not discounted that yet. You know what I mean? And like, again, you know, we made this point on market call and on, on the tape here. If I'm looking at the QQQ, okay, and I'm looking at the NASDAQ 100 chart, this is a beautiful looking chart. I, I mean that. It's like literally one of the best looking charts that I can see in the entire market. It's up about 17.5% on the year. We just talked about the concentration. Microsoft and Apple are 25% of the weight of this index of 100 stocks. Then throw Amazon, Alphabet, NVIDIA, Tesla, and Meta in there, and you're at 50% of the weight. And listen, I've been saying this all the time. I said it a few weeks ago. You know, Remember my Qs and Twos? I think you want to average into the QQQ and then also into treasuries. Like That's the trade when we come out of it. But I don't think anything has been discounted yet. And, and the major point, I'll say, that has not discounted yet, and we've talked a lot about this, and Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley is out again this morning saying he sees considerable earnings risk. All right, so Liz, like, let's talk about that because again, we've seen right now for Q1, I guess S&P earnings are expected to be down what they have been over the last couple of quarters. So, so estimates come down into it. Companies kind of don't really miss that badly as they've come down. But sooner or later, there's going to be a couple very large companies that have already cut to the bone. They've already made tens of thousands of job cuts. They've kind of frozen capex and this and that, whatever. And they're going to have a big miss. And then, in the backdrop of that, when you can't cut much more, that's when earnings estimates have to come down pretty dramatically. That's right. So you look at the big tech companies that have cut a lot, even the small tech companies that have cut a lot. This earnings season will be the time when we decide whether or not they cut enough, right? Was it enough to protect their margins? Was it enough to protect uh, the lower revenue growth that, that they're seeing because inflation has come down? The other thing I would say about earnings season is that if you look at the calendar, one of the first banks to report is First Republic on April 13th, I believe. BlackRock reports that day, and then the rest of them come in within the next few days. So that's going to be a volatile time. And the other part, you know, if you talk about just how the financials recovered after the crisis, 
think about it too. I know I'm a macro strategist, so I'm going to bring it there. But if you look at something like the unemployment rate, things crash in a straight line. They recover in a very slow grinding line. So it's going to, this is going to be all about the slope of the line, which if you're a math geek, it's the rise over the run, right? When things crash, they go down in a pretty fast fashion and you can connect the dots from one to two. And it's just one little straight line. When they come back, it's this kind of staircase back up, depending on the indicator you're looking at. That's how this is going to go. And at least in my opinion, that's how this is going to go. We haven't seen that big crash yet. We've seen it in little parts of the market. We haven't seen it broadly, and we haven't seen it in economic data. I think we are on the verge of seeing it. And frankly, I'd rather just let's just get it over with, right? Just just be done with it. Like almost in April, let's just get it done and then start that slow grind back up. I think what the ECB had to do last week and and Liz talked about this as well. I mean, she has mentioned a number of times that the inflation problem they have there is greater than the inflation problem we have here. I Yes, I agree with that. But in the wake of everything that happened in our banking system, and then subsequently, the news you heard from, let's say, Deutsche Bank and a couple of the Swiss banks out there, that was all out in the ether. And the fact that the ECB moved 50 basis points in the wake of all that, realizing what they were contending with, I mean... That to me speaks volumes. And again, you know, whatever happens here, we've already made the move in rates. Those effects have not been felt yet. People think that if the Fed pauses now, magically everything gets better. No, because the lag effects of all these rate hikes are going to kick in and inflation is still a problem. Inflation hurts earn. I mean, we can go right down the list of reasons why things are going to deteriorate from here. Yet you have an S&P 500 that it's continuing to hold that 200-day moving average you're continuing to see relative strength in the NASDAQ. You continue to see the VIX trade lower. And I think for a lot of people out there, they're, they're giving the all clear sign. I'm not ready to do that at all yet, Dan. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. 
So let's talk about a few earnings this week. Micron's one of them. The SMH ETF that tracks the semiconductor index has massively outperformed. The broad market's up 26%. So that's obviously, you know, the S&P's up about 4%. Like I said, the NASDAQ 100's up about 17.5% or so. NVIDIA, which is, you know, up 84% on the year, up more than 100% from its lows in late last year, is, is a huge part of that. Taiwan Semi is a huge part of that. But, guy, Micron this week, okay, the implied move in the options market is, I don't know, 6% or so. Again, that seems really low for a, a stock like Micron, which often has a lot of volatility in their earnings. And, you know, they had a huge pull forward last year. You know, the earnings growth was pretty dramatic, expected to be down this year. Just thoughts on this. I mean, we don't have to kind of hit the name individually, how you trade it. I mean, because like to me, it's like, it's not particularly compelling one way or another. I'm really more interested to hear about kind of their clarity as far as the environment right now, right? And, and kind of what they have to say about that. And I have to think with Taiwan Semi, which has been doing a lot of heavy lifting in the semis off the lows and, and surprising to you and me, because if there is any sort of issue between China and Taiwan, and, and the rhetoric seems to be heating up, they're going to be really right at the, the, the nexus of the issues. And if we thought that Russia's invasion of Ukraine this time last year disrupted energy supplies and supply chains and really kind of caused you know inflation to kind of just rip there. What goes on in chips after a, a, some some sort of issue with Taiwan, it could it could be as easily as like an economic blockade of Taiwan. You know what I mean by the Chinese? We're going to have some problems. Let's do Taiwan Semi first. I think it was late last year where they they came out with a pretty miserable quarter. Um, and the first half of this year guidance was marginal at best. But then magically they said in the back half of 2023, which by the way, we're fast approaching they seem to think they have the clarity to sort of raise guidance. And the market said, you know what? Good for you. I think the stock has been off to the races ever since. And now they're going to have to start to prove themselves because now they're coming into the period of time where it's sort of like that old saying where the rubber hits the road. Well, now we're at the point where the rubber's starting to hit the road. So they better um, they better come through on that back half of 23 guidance. I'm not certain that can be the case, by the way. In terms of Micron, which I think if I'm right, it's about 61 bucks since June of last year, almost a year now, 10 months, this stock has basically been 55, 65. And we've sort of found a home around the 60, 61 level. So in my opinion, you're just sort of, you're flipping coins here in Micron. And that, I think that implied move illustrates exactly that. I don't think people have a lot of clarity. Micron is, I think we all realize is a little different than the rest of these chip play. I mean, their base come down to DRAM pricing and NAND pricing. And I can't speak intelligently about that. But what I will say is, as much as Micron would like to think they're not a commoditized company or not a cyclical company, the reality is they're still a commodity and they're still a very cyclical company, Dan. Yeah, very much so. And and meant to, you know, early cycles sort of play. And I think that's one of the reasons why you've seen the outperformance this year in, in the semiconductors, because again, the calendar turned. And for some reason, I think the, the powers that be said, you know, the recession's not happening and the bear market's over as we started this year. And I don't think that's been really clear. But Liz, a couple pieces of data this week that you want to focus on. At the end of the week, we have PCE. We know the personal consumption expenditures. That is the Fed's favored inflation sort of reading. We also have consumer confidence, and that's going to lead us to another name reporting this week, which which might be kind of interesting, which is the Lululemon, which we know that, you know, guy wears the pants and you were kind of probably head to toe most <laughs> of the weekend. Most quick, of the weekend. Um, no, I do not wear, I think they call them joggers, if I'm not mistaken, but I do wear the boxer briefs and they're 
they're fantastic. They're, yeah. I mean, well, everybody the, should the, embrace the, them. The overshare. Right, Maybe so, a little so, overshare. So, so Liz, like PCE, is this going to be a market mover? And I know um, you're, you're focused also in consumer confidence. Yeah, so I I do think PCE will be more of a market mover than consumer confidence. Consumer confidence is what somebody like me will watch, and I'll tell you why. So we've got two measures of consumer sentiment slash confidence. One of them is the conference board one that we'll get this week. The other one is the University of Michigan. The biggest differences between them is just the way they ask the questions. Consumer confidence skews more towards the jobs market. Sentiment skews more towards inflation. So if we get confidence this week and it plummets, we will know that consumers are looking through the jobs data and deciding that this so-called banking crisis, financial crisis, is scary enough to them that their outlook has become that much more dire. And that's a big deal. And the reason that's a big deal is because I've said this before, there is no such thing as an economic expansion in the U.S. without the consumer. If the consumer starts to get scared, they can change their mind on a dime. And it happens very, very quickly. So I think the consumer confidence numbers, although maybe not market moving, are important to watch. PCE which we'll get on Friday, as as you mentioned, Dan, this is the, the Fed's preferred measure, still expected, even on a core basis, to be 4.7% year over year, which is steady with last month's reading, and also more than twice what their target is. So yes, it's come down, not nearly far enough, and that's why we still got a 25 basis point hike, and that's why they're still not satisfied. So Guy, you, you say this uh, time and again, that, that consumer confidence in the U.S. is really an overlay of the S&P 500, and it's interesting when you think of, you know, uh, you also like to quote the Dow Jones Industrial Average every once in a while. Not, not I literally just had to pull it up on my fax set machine because I don't have it anywhere on my main page, but it's down 2% of the year, all right? So when you think about U.S. consumers, and you think about like what you've often said is an overlay of kind of the stock market, Stock market's down, housing's down, lending is is much harder, right? It, it, like the cost of capital is harder, rates are much higher, right? So the days of refinancing and buying flat screens or whatever the hell else you were going to do, you know, with that are over here. And we know that consumer credit is going way up and savings are coming down. So talk to us where you think the state of the consumer is. And that's why I do think that like, you know, what we heard from Nike a week or two ago was interesting. And that's why we're focused a little bit here on Lulu. It's very North American focused but it will give us a sense. We've heard this from retailers like Walmart and Target and Costco that they've been seeing a trade down for a year. And that's why Lulu might be really interesting to us. Census came out with a report a couple of weeks ago, 30, I think it was 39.7 million Americans. And they actually thought it was significantly more than that were at or below the poverty line. So you're talking about, and this is a number that I said all the time, you know, 12 to 15% of the population living in the 1930s, number one. Number two, People will talk about the health of the consumer all the time, and it's such a lazy comment, but they throw it out there. And you know this, Dan, I say all the time, never bet against the U.S. consumers want to spend. It's whether or not they should be spending. So if you start to break it down, credit card debt, either side of a trillion dollars, that's never happened before. Obviously, there's a want for the unemployment rate to go higher. We're seeing layoffs across a broad spectrum of industries. That's not going to be particularly good for the consumer. And the reason I mentioned the S&P and the overlay of consumer confidence, you know, when Dan Rather or Peter Jennings or uh, one of those cats, Tom Brokaw, Tom Brokaw leads the My evening faith. news at six o'clock with Dow Jones Industrial Average down two and a half percent, it makes people take notice. And then if that happens over the course of a few days, people say, well, wait a second, what's going on in the stock market? the economy. Maybe I shouldn't be buying that uh, it's espresso. Maybe I shouldn't be going on that trip. And I'll tell you, just go back and look, consumer spending stops on a dime 
when you have stock market events to the downside. So that's the reason I say it. Now, we haven't really had a stock market event. Yeah, the stock market hasn't behaved all that well. But outside of a day or two, there have been really no dramatic moves to the downside. Um, what I'll tell you, though, is if we start to see those, and if people once again is on their radar screen that the Dow Jones is lower in a meaningful way, that's how quickly things stop. And when you're talking about an economy that's 73% driven by people buying shit, that's a problem. Well, one of the other thing that's inter interesting about this, and this is anecdotal, but over the weekend I was talking to some friends and one of they're outside the industry and they said something like, well, from the, the little I've read, it sounds like the issues have been uh, specific to the company, bad risk management, you know, they didn't hedge, whatever. And, and that's kind of what America was told now that it was specific to the company and, and it was a management problem. It wasn't a systemic problem. And, you know, perhaps on some levels, right? But the liquidity problem is universal. And I hope that there isn't too much that's being out, that's put out there, that's leading people in the direction of thinking that the risk is over, we can continue to spend as usual, and our jobs are, are safe as usual, right? In some sectors, yes, that's probably true. But this was not just a unique situation that we're not going to hear about again. Yeah. And, you know, we just talked about this, but, you know, where were some of the early jobs cuts that were coming from major, large, you know, like tech companies, big platform companies, a lot of private tech companies, right? So this was happening in 2022 as the cost of capital's rates were going higher. And then we were seeing the kind of aftermath of the pull forward during the pandemic. So the deceleration in a lot of the trends there. And so it really was this kind of little banking crisis, which was, you know, a shot across the bow for a lot of companies. And, and we've talked about the underperformance of late in the Russell 2000 in small caps who actually have a harder time accessing capital. So here's what happens next on the other side of this is that if this is, to, 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 and Guy, you've mentioned this on many times um, of late, if this were to kind of move into some sort of credit situation, right, where smaller companies start defaulting or whether it's commercial real estate or whatever the hell it is, what do those companies do? They're going to have to cut costs. They're going to have to cut jobs. And and that's how the recession, uh, you know, really starts to happen. And then that should be reflected um, in the markets. Um, all right. Let's just talk about this really quickly on the way out here, guys. Um, keep an eye on two things that I'm focused on right now is the KRE, which is the KBW Regional Bank Index. Now it's only up 1% on the day. That FRC that was up 30%, okay, off the Silicon Valley Bank News with First Citizens is only up 13%, okay? So, like, keep an eye on that. If the regional banks go down on the day, and and really, I think it's going to set the tone for the week. And then, to Liz's point about the concentration of those handful of names in the S&P 500 that make up 25%, they make up 50% of the NASDAQ 100. Well, I'm starting to see semis down on the day. I see Google down 2%. I see Microsoft down a half percent. I see Apple down a half a percent. I mean, if you see regional banks and financials go down with tech, then that's kind of lights out for the market guy. Thoughts on that? Yeah, Put your real fast quick money before we get out of here. I mean, you know, since we started to, so people understand this will drop today, Monday in the afternoon, but we start doing this at 10 a.m. And since we started doing this 10 a.m. on the East Coast, the HYG, which again, I'm not suggesting people trade this, but it's gone from about 73.85 or so below 73.60. And people will be like, well, that's not a big deal. I will tell you in this instrument, when you start to see moves like that, it is something to keep an eye on. So that went from being positive to negative. I've said a hundred times that credit's something you have to watch. 
watch it in the form of the HYG. That's been a tell a number of times, EY. One of the other things, literally as Dan said that, the NASDAQ turned negative marginally. And something else that's interesting, I, t- I think about relationships all the time, not people relationships, although I think about we, those Are we two. good? Are we yeah, good? Yeah, I think we're okay. Okay, good. Yeah. But the 10-year Treasury yield has dropped, and the Na- it was at the same time that the NASDAQ was coming down. So this was not a situation where it was like, yields are down, that's good for stocks. I think something's, something's afoot. Something's afoot. All right, people. Well, that is our Monday edition of On the Tape. We thank Liz Young. That would be EY from SoFi for joining us, as always, on Mondays. And Guy Adami, without his faux hawk, yeah. he's all fired I'm up I'm going to make a prediction, Volpe. by the way. And typically, my predictions come true. You ready for this one? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the baseball season, as you said earlier, Dan, starts uh, in earnest this week. Correct? Yeah. At Thursday. some point this year, the Milwaukee Brewers organization will reach out to Elizabeth Young and ask her to throw out the first pitch at a Brewers game. I'm just telling you Let's get that going, people. When it happens... You heard it here first, peeps. Oh God! All right, we gotta we gotta come up with a hashtag for that and get I gotta that warm trending. Up my, I gotta warm up my rotator cuff. I think. Oh man! Well, like, you can't <laughs> you can't do an underarm <laughs> softball pitch if you're out there. All right, let's be honest. All right, that's it for us, people. Check us out um, at Market Call. Liz will be back with us on Thursday on Market Call. That's one p.m. Eastern. You can find it on our Twitter. You can go to the Risk Reversal Media YouTube site. Follow us there, and obviously leave us feedback here, people. Go to the podcast store wherever you find your your favorite podcast and leave us a, leave us a review so thanks a and, lot and, we'll see and, y'all and folks get ready for it <laughs> smash the f and like button <laughs> thanks again to our presenting sponsors cme group i connections factset and sofi if you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.